Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. The final from Target Field in Minnesota. It's the Minnesota Twins 8, the Cleveland Indians 2. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy watching baseball being played. And obviously, the top storyline, I'm back. I'm back in my home studio. That's not the top storyline. The top storyline is Josh Naylor going down with a fracture. I don't believe I saw any updates before I turned in last night. I don't know if there were any updates this morning, but Terry Francona basically said, yes, it's a fracture. Uh, They carted him off the field. It was a very scary play. I guess if you didn't see it, and uh, people eventually stopped posting it to Twitter, you know, and it's it's pretty rough to see. I mean, there are some gruesome leg injuries throughout sports history, right? Bo Jackson in football, uh, Willis McGahey, you know, for the University of Miami against Ohio State. Um, this one is on that list. This one is definitely on that list. Now, you, you typically see these in football, right? Common in football because there's so much change of direction. And then the impact of getting tackled, of getting hit, even changes that direction again. So you're planting, you're changing direction, and then a defender hitting you might even add another angle to that uh, and increase the chance of injury. You don't see that that much in baseball, right? The, the, the only time you see lower leg injuries like this is if a guy is maybe sliding into second base, sliding into a base and takes out the ankle of the of the fielder trying to cover the bag uh it's not it's not very common i mean even the outfielders we were talking about this yesterday outfielders hurt themselves all the time right they do it to themselves running into the outfield wall colliding with each other um diving for a ball right michael brantley diving for that ball in left center field and target field target field's a nasty place apparently for indians outfielders and uh, that's not where, uh, no, that's not where Tyler Naquin hurt his knee. Remember, he he ran into the outfield wall himself and uh, tore his ACL. That was in Tampa Bay. So, yeah, the uh, outfielders do it to themselves, and this time it's two players colliding. So it was a check swing uh, flare out to right field, and Ernie Clement was racing back. I don't know if Clement exactly where he was set up on that play if the shift was causing him to be shift was probably causing him to be more in the outfield than he normally would be but Clement goes back on it and um Josh Naylor comes in on it and they slam into each other and Francona said nobody called it I mean that's 100% Josh Naylor's ball it's 100% his to catch. He had it. He, he would have caught it at chest level. It would have been an easy out. But nobody called it. And that is insane to me. That is crazy. I was talking to my father about this. It's like in old man softball on Sundays. I'm shouting my head off calling for balls. I don't care if I call someone off. I don't care if they call me off. As long as someone says something. In fact, if I don't hear you, I'm call, I'm going to call for it just because someone's got to. Someone's got to take charge out there. Uh, so if we can figure it out in old man softball, they've been taught this since they were five years old. They call for it. 
How is this happening in Major League Baseball where outfielders are colliding with each other? It should never happen in Major League Baseball. It should be so ingrained into their DNA. It should be so instinct for them. And yet it's not. They don't do it. What is that, the human condition or something? What, what is wrong with people that they can't just simply say, I got it? How hard is that? Even if you don't got it, someone's got to take charge out there. I've called for plenty of balls in the outfield and then muttered curse words under my breath, not even under my breath, muttered curse words to myself as I charged in and slid for a ball that I probably shouldn't have called, but someone had to take charge out there. Now, often muttering those curse words, I do come up with a catch if, you know, if I do say so myself, I'm pretty decent out there, but this should be so ingrained in their DNA. So, anyways, the, the injury does not happen on the actual collision. He, he like, spins off Ernie Clement. I don't know if he was trying to get out of the way and try to avoid injury, but he ends up doing, you know, a 180, a 360 in the air, and that's where he hurts himself. Landing, his ankle basically collapses underneath him, and it's a bad one. He is in... He is in pain immediately. I mean, some guys go still when they get hurt, and he was pounding the ground in pain. So, uh, you know, it's a really scary scene. Clement is destroyed by it. He's at his side with his head between his knees, um, just apologizing to everybody, uh, and they cart him off the field. So it was a really scary scene. It's, it's the only thing of importance that really happened yesterday. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's absolutely tough. Do not be one of those people that starts beating up on players on Twitter after an injury like this. Don't beat up on Josh Naylor for his defense. Do not beat up on Ernie Clement for, uh, for running into him. I know I was just giving them a hard time about not calling it. That's talking more about the situation. I'm not going to say that either of them are a terrible player or a terrible person because of this, right? They're both seem to be really good guys and two guys that were going hard after a ball. And unfortunately, this happened. Don't be, don't be. I mean, I saw it. I saw it yesterday already. And uh, luckily, there are people coming to their defense on Twitter and uh, standing up for what's right in this situation. So, uh, yeah, the uh, it's a scary play, and he's going to be out for a while. I mean, Josh Naylor is definitely, but the good news is, the good news is, I have broken my leg before, multiple times, to the stress of my parents, and I can tell you that a broken leg, you will come back from. You, will. I think we talked about this, we were talking about this in the playoffs last year. Right? Didn't someone get an injury, a bad injury, and was able to make it back by the playoffs? If you listen to season one, I remember getting into a conversation about this. A broken bone, like, they can set a broken bone and get it to heal pretty good. And yeah, it's going to take a few months of wearing a cast, but once that cast comes off, 
Those bones are ready, you know, ready to go. They're ready for physical therapy. A long road of physical therapy, but they're ready to go. Then once the bones are fused back together, it's just about getting the muscles strong again. That's doable. The, the soft tissue injuries, those, the tendons and things like that, those are a little tougher to come back from. But we've seen it before. We've seen, look what OBJ is doing right now for the Browns. Look at him sprinting. A, a, it's ridiculous to someone who's been a slow runner all their life. It's ridiculous to watch a human being's legs go that fast on a treadmill. Like it's, it's yeah, it's mind blowing. But look what OBJ is doing right now, getting ready for Brown season. He will be back out there taking hits, making cuts, right? Josh Naylor doesn't have to worry about someone clobbering him going across the middle, hopefully ever again. Josh Naylor might not be in the outfield when he comes back. He might be back to his good old first base. Who knows? Who knows what this team is going to look like? Uh, He kind of is a man stuck between positions right now because there's a lot of first basemen, right? Bobby Bradley now kind of anchoring that position. Um, So, yeah. So, the Indians have some decisions to make to fill that outfield spot. I think they're down to three active outfielders on the roster, uh, although I think Clement and I think you Chang could probably handle left field in a pinch, you know, but center field and right field, it's pretty much going to be Zimmer and uh, Harold Ramirez out there. I mean, heck, Jose Ramirez can handle on a pitch, but not pinch, but let's not do that. Uh, Fermil Reyes is going to be activated soon and everybody's anticipating that you Chang or Ernie Clement is going to be the roster move for activating Fermil Reyes because we do not want Fermil Reyes out in right field. Yes, he can stand out there, and yes, he can catch a fly ball, but I got to imagine his range metrics are pretty bad, and uh, we could do better defensively out there. So looking at at AAA, the true outfielders, and then Nolan Jones, who could also maybe play out there. Uh, you've got, well, let's just look at Nolan Jones first. He's only hitting 222. He is slugging 405, right? He's got four home runs. He's got 16 doubles. Does he, he leads the Columbus Clippers in doubles. So there's something. Uh, he is striking out a ton. He is also close to the lead. Him and Daniel Johnson are leading the way with strikeouts. Nolan Jones has 59. Daniel Johnson has 61. Uh, 10 more walks for Nolan Jones. So that strikeout to walk ratio looking a little bit better for Nolan Jones. 27 walks, 17 walks for Daniel Johnson. They're both hitting in the 220s. 222 for Nolan Jones, 224 for Daniel Johnson. Although he is leading Columbus along with Bobby Bradley was with nine home runs. So there you go. That's something. Um, so the other odd fielders, Oscar Mercado, uh, is not hitting very well either. He's only hitting 216. He's got a 718 OPS. He does have a bunch of doubles, a couple of home runs. Um, he his strikeouts are way down though. His walks to strikeouts is getting pretty close uh, to 50. percent It's 23 walks to 32 strikeouts. That's not a terrible ratio. Uh, He's got nine stolen bases, most stolen bases on the team. So that's an option. And then Connor Maribel, uh, 
is actually hitting the best of all those outfielders, 263, but light hitting. Only two home runs, only seven doubles. So not a ton of extra base hits uh, mixed in there and less at-bats. Almost 50, 60 less at-bats than Oscar Mercado, uh, than Daniel Johnson. So there's some of your options. The last option, of course, is Andres Jimenez comes back up to play shortstop. He's hitting 274 down there with an 840 OPS. He has eight home runs. He's found a little bit of pop down there. He could come back up and play shortstop, and Ahmed Rosario could go back out to the outfield, back to center field. Bradley Zimmer could play right and center. So could Harold Ramirez. So yeah, that is another option. I know that I, I think Ahmed Rosario needs to stick shortstop. It's working just because it's working. In fact, his bat was one of the few that actually did something yesterday. So I would like to see him stay at shortstop. Someone was saying that Andres Jimenez can basically be trade bait at this point. And yeah, he really could because you got so many middle infielders right behind him. You got Gabriel Arias. You've got Owen Miller. You've got Clement. Uh, you got... Tyler Krieger is another second baseman in Columbus, although he is not doing very well. Uh, and then you got the guys down at double A. You got a bunch of guys down at double A ready to knock on the door if Arias, you know, would get a call up. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of shortstop options, and Jimenez might be trade bait. I mean, we need another starter. In fact, we haven't even talked on this show yet about Brad Peacock, uh, who got signed recently. He was a starter for Houston, kind of went back and forth between the bullpen and starting, almost like Plutko did for us, but with much more success, a much more successful Adam Plutko. And uh, Peacock is a guy who they think he's going to pitch two innings. I believe to, it was yesterday or today he was supposed to pitch two innings for the uh, for the Columbus Clippers. And... Uh, then they think they could get him up here to pitch a couple innings. They think they can get him up here to maybe throw a couple innings and get things going. He has not pitched yet. Maybe it's today that he's supposed to pitch two innings. And if he could do sort of an opener role until he gets more stretched out, go two, three innings. He wasn't pitching for anybody. They saw him in a few showcases and thought his stuff looked good. He suffered an injury last season, was out for most of the 2020 season. They think his stuff looks good, and he's ready to not just take one more ride at it, to, to actually compete for a spot and prove that he can pitch in Major League Baseball again and continue his career. So, Peacock is a guy that could step in and maybe be a fifth starter on this team. And uh, that's encouraging. I guess Plesak did either had his first. No, he did not have his first rehab start yet. He's going to pitch Tuesday with double A Akron. So there you go. Uh, yeah, he uh, Plesak could be on the road back. How many innings does he go in Akron? Uh, hopefully the, you know, the arm and the shoulder, he was able to keep strong while dealing with that broken thumb or broken finger. So, yeah, so Polisak could be on the road back as soon as maybe after the All-Star game. So there is a little bit of pitching relief coming for the Indians. Um, so, yeah, so that is some other news to keep an eye on. Now, we are way off the storylines of this game. We have not even 
briefed, uh, you know, breached the surface of this game. So let's get into the storylines of the actual game. Aside from the Naylor injury, it was a pretty brutal day for the Cleveland Indians. And offensively, almost nothing to show, really. Uh, Ahmed Rosario was two for three with a double, but they were not able to bring him in. And a walk. He was on base three times yesterday. That's pretty good. Uh, Jose Ramirez did double and score. Eddie Rosario was able to drive him in with a single through the left side. So Jose Ramirez, he had three hard-hit balls yesterday. In fact, the Indians had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hard-hit balls off of Jay Happ yesterday. Unfortunately, only had six hits. So uh, they weren't translating all of those hard-hit balls into hits yesterday. Uh, so that was Eddie Rosario's only hit of the day. Bobby Bradley did nothing. Harold Ramirez was one for four. The Naylor-Zimmer combination didn't do anything at the plate. Although Zimmer did walk. He is drawing walks. Um, and Rene Rivera with a solo home run. So, and a walk. He was on base twice yesterday. So the Indians offense, Ernie Clement did nothing from the nine hole. Cesar Hernandez, nothing at the top of the order. So yeah, the Indians offense was pretty... Pretty rough for yesterday. I mean, only six hits. Jay Happ got locked in. Happ's final line on the day, six innings pitch, six hits, two earned runs, no walks, seven strikeouts, and the one home run allowed on 102 pitches. The guy that comes in with a five, well, he leaves with a 583 ERA, and we are not able to do much damage against him. Now, on the other side of things, Sam Henches had another rough start. Already getting into trouble. Gave up runs in every inning. In fact, uh, the Twins scored in every one of the first four innings the Twins scored in. One run in the first, two runs in the second, a run in the third, and then three in the fourth. Now those would come on a big, big three-run home run from Nelson Cruz in the fourth. Justin Garza got a fun introduction to Major League Baseball. We'll get to Garza in a second. Henches, he struggled to throw strikes again. What can I say? He was around just over, I believe, 50% strikes thrown yesterday. And that's not good enough. That is absolutely not good enough. He has to pound the strike zone a little bit more. And if you're going to get guys to swing at that slider, and it's a good slider, there's nothing wrong with that slider or the curveball, you have got to throw more strikes. 72 pitches, only 30 Eight strikes. That's not good enough. Absolutely not. And uh, going over to the player breakdown here, threw the fastball and the curveball a lot. Actually threw the slider the least yesterday. Was mixing in a sinker with his fastball. Maybe deciding which one he liked better. I don't know. Um, The CSW on the sinker was six. So that's not good. Um, The fastball was a little bit better. He got two whiffs on 10 swings. He had a 19 CSW total with two called strikes on the fastball. The curveball and the slider were decently effective. Uh, 25% CSW on the curveball, 36% on the slider. It's only good for a 21% on the day. Not good enough. Um, Yeah, going over to the illustrator... He uh, he was at least using all four quadrants. There is a, a line you could draw on this chart. You know, that lefty line of where these pitches are coming in from, right? From high and away to down and in. 
there is still a line you could draw here through all these pitches, you know, the average line on all these pitches. And it's something else you could do with another big lefty um, who is pretty dominant with his slider, and that's Clayton Kershaw. Kershaw pitched yesterday. I thought it'd be a fun time to pull up his illustrator, his pitches, and see what he was doing different than Sam Hench's. Now, obviously, Kershaw is a future Hall of Famer, one of the best pitchers in baseball, despite, you know, the playoff struggles. In the regular season, you don't get more dominant than Clayton Kershaw. Uh, So again, a lefty that throws that slider, fastball, curveball mix. Kershaw was definitely throwing his slider a ton yesterday. In fact, through the slider, let's go over to the player breakdown. In his, he dominated against the Cubs. They won seven to one. I believe he goes eight innings in this one. And uh, he threw the slider 49 times compared to the fastball, only 38. CSW on the slider was at 57%. 31 swings, 22 whiffs on the slider for Clayton Kershaw. Now, I know you can't see this, so it's a podcast. I'm going to do my best to describe it to you. He is not only pounding the strike zone with his slider. Yes, they are all in that down and in corner, right? This is the catcher view down and to the left. He is pounding the slider in there, but he's working the shadows of the plate a lot. There are a ton of these sliders right underneath the strike zone, right at the knees. And these got a lot of swinging strikes and called strikes here. When he starts reaching a little further, uh, they start going for balls, right? So let's take a look at Sam Henches. What was Henches doing? He wasn't really pounding that corner with the slider. He's got about three sliders in that corner. One was a called strike. One was in play for runs. One was a swinging strike. The rest of the sliders are down in the dirt. Um, There's a couple that are up in the strike zone, which is fine you got to throw it for a strike to get a little bit of respect out of it, right? But he's just not attacking, and he's not attacking the shadow of the plate at all. These pitches are very loosely grouped around the plate. There's no definitive area. In fact, if there's a definitive area that he was attacking, it would be the outside edge of the plate. There were a lot of righties in that lineup yesterday, and he was trying to keep the ball away. He was throwing his sinker away all day, threw the sinker a bunch. And it was decently effective for him. Well, actually, I take that back. It wasn't effective for him. His CSW was awful on that sinker. Again, no swings and misses, one called strike on that sinker. So two foul balls, only two. Five were hit, put in play. So yeah, so not exactly what you're looking for there. Um, The fastball was up, which is fine. Like if you want to go slider, curveball down, that's fine. The fastball was up, but not in the strike zone not attacking the strike zone with that fastball. Kershaw was in that zone with his fastball. He was using it to get ahead a lot, threw it a ton uh, to start at-bats and pound the strike zone with it. Yes, there are balls up at the top of the zone, but there are plenty of fastballs in the zone attacking, and he doesn't throw a fastball like Henches throws a fastball. Henches gets his up to 96. He has some heat on that fastball. So I would love to see him attack a little more with that fastball to start at-bats. The curveball use was pretty decent yesterday. He was throwing the curveball all over to basically three different quadrants. Obviously, you're not going to get a curveball up and in. That would be a pretty challenging place. Although Kershaw did it. 
Kershaw's got two curveballs up and in, and both work for strikes. That is pretty impressive. Um, so yeah, so Kershaw's curveball very much goes 12 to 6. And uh Henches has a little bit more horizontal break to his curveball, but um, yeah, he was putting it all over, so that is good to see. If he can spot that curveball all over the place, and he was feeling good with it yesterday, he threw it a lot. Um, that's encouraging to see. So obviously, some things for Henches to work on. Number one, just throw more strikes. Use that fastball, get yourself ahead with that fastball, get a strike one with that fastball, and then you got to be able to keep that slider in the shadows. You want to know what separates you from a Hall of Fame pitcher right now, Sam Henches? Those are two things I could look visually at and see those are two things that are separating you right now. You're not using that fastball to get strikes, and you're not using the shadows of the plate with that slider, right? If you can prove you could throw that slider in that corner, you can start to expand a little bit and continue to get strikes called. That's what a legendary player like Clayton Kershaw is able to do. And honest to God, that's something that Henches could model himself after. That should be a player that he is watching tape on constantly uh, to try to figure out how he attacks hitters. So yeah, so that's what was going on with Sam Henches. I thought it was a fun comparison. I mean, Henches is having a pretty brutal season. He is in the bottom percentile rankings in a ton of categories. Expected weighted on base percentage, second percentile. Almost one of the worst in baseball. Expected slugging percentage, worst in baseball. First percentile. Barrel percentage, second percentile. Expected batting average, sixth percentile. Uh, Hard hit percentage, 11th percentile. These are bad. This means he's getting hard hit a ton. This means he's getting barreled a ton. This means the expected slugging percentage against him is astronomically high compared to the rest of the league. First percentile. His chase rate is okay at 61%, but that's really the only... His fastball velocity is at 71%. Probably if we just put that as far as starters go, it would be pretty high. His whiff percentage is at the 40th percentile, so not getting the swings and misses. So yeah, so it is rough. It is really rough for Sam Henches right now. But he's 24 years old with a ton, with a ton of potential there. Right? At the alternate site last year, that everybody talked about how hard Sam Henches was to hit. He's just got to make it work at the major league level. I do not want to see him go anywhere. I want to see him run out there every five days and start for the Cleveland Indians right now because I think there is a really good starter in there somewhere. Clayton Kershaw wasn't, you know, wasn't totally dominant in his rookie season. He was 5-5 five and five back in 2008. So this is pretty, I can't even get StatCast numbers on this far back. He was 5-5 five and five in uh, 21 starts. With a 4.26 ERA. All right, 52 walks to 100 strikeouts, so a two to one ratio there, and a 1.5 WHIP. Now, in his rookie season, um, the walks to strikeout ratio is more of a, a two thirds ratio. It's 20 walks to thir- no, it's getting close to 50 percent. 20 walks to 38 strikeouts, so it is close to a two to one ratio. His WHIP is up at 199. His ERA is up at 7.32. So, yeah, it's no Clayton Kershaw yet, yet. But there is potential in there 
for Sam Hentges. And it may be unfair to compare him to a legendary pitcher like Kershaw, but they both pitched yesterday. They're both lefties that have pretty good curve slider combos. So I figured, why not? Why not throw out the comparison? All right. Uh, yeah. So the Indians game yesterday, uh, Justin Garza went in, got his first chance, did a decent job with the hard stuff, uh, fastball and cutter, uh, and the sinker. So he can kind of throw three different pitches in the 90 mile per hour range. He slows down the cutter a little bit. That one maxed at 91, averaged 89.8. So there is a little bit of difference there between the fastball and the cutter, um, Throws a slider and a curve, but didn't use them very much yesterday. Uh, really attacked with the hard stuff. And it was, I mean, it was working. He had three swings, or eight swings, three whiffs on the fastball, four called strikes. That's good for a 50% CSW uh, on his fastball. The cutter was at 31%. He got three whiffs on five swings on his cutter. Now, the slider did not go so well for him. He threw a slider to Nelson Cruz that might still be traveling. Cruz absolutely unload on a pitch that was supposed to be down and away. It was in the heart of the plate. And uh, after he got Donaldson on a called third strike to start, his first major league player he ever faces is Josh Donaldson and gets him looking on a pitch that was eh, probably away, but gets the call from the umpire. His next better he has to face is Nelson Cruz, and he destroys that slider uh, into the seats in left field. So quite... Quite the the welcome for Justin Garza in his first major league appearance. Does go two and two-thirds innings, so gives the innings a little length yesterday. That was the only hit he gave up. Uh, so he had three strikeouts on the day. So not terrible. Not a terrible debut for Garza. Uh, a kind of welcome to the big leagues kid moment for him uh, from Nelson Cruz there. And then he sets down the rest of the uh, Twins batters that he faces. So... That is pretty good from Justin Garza uh, to start. Phil Mayton came in and looked dominant, strikes out two in a row, and then walks the next three, including walking in a run. Uh, Mayton absolutely fell apart, could not throw his fastball down at all, kept losing every fastball up. So who knows what happened there? And Kyle Nelson finishes things off in an ugly, ugly loss to the Minnesota Twins. And it's an ugly road trip. It's a pretty... Pretty bad, ugly, disgusting road trip for the Cleveland Indians. Facing facing some teams that they should have racked up series wins against. They lose 2-1, to one, you know, the series to the Pirates. They lose 2-1, to one, the series to the Twins. And they split with the Cubs. That's nasty. They should have come out of this with a much, much better record than that. And uh, they lose a half a game to the White Sox. The run differential is back under, uh, back on, you know, back in negative numbers. So that's not good. Um, yeah, the Indians, the Indians have their work cut out for them, right? It's going to be a battle, and they've got to keep fighting through this All Star break. There's guys coming back. Roberto Perez is on his way back. Um, Fermil Reyes is on his way back. Fermil Reyes, if he's not called up in this series. I mean, if he's not called up today, I don't know what they're waiting for. Uh, they've got the roster spot now. There's no reason for me. Reyes should not be called up. And he was hitting home runs down in Columbus, right? He's pounding doubles off the wall, hitting home runs. If he says he's pain free, he does not need another swing in Columbus. He needs to be here in Cleveland. 
hitting cleanup for the Indians tonight against the Tigers. Especially because I'm going to this game. As long as it's not a rainout, I am there to watch Eli Morgan pitch. I think Morgan might have his first major league win. I think I think he might get it tonight. He has pitched much better in his last two starts. It does tend to fall apart on him. So I'm excited to see what he's got. Because I think Morgan's got some serious potential too. There is potential in all these starters. And it might be that kind of season. I know we're still competing, which is great. We're still competing in the Central Division. But we're still competing for the wild card. But it could be the kind of season where we really see what the young guys have. And uh, if it takes us into the playoffs, great. If it sets us up for something in the future, maybe that's just the kind of season we're looking at. But I still think there is a winning ball club somewhere in here. Somewhere in here. There is potential. There is a winning ball club. All right. Those are my thoughts. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. It was a long one. We had a lot to talk about with Naylor and with Henches. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on the game, and we'll discuss them on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm forward slash clevelandbaseballmornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play them back on the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait. MVP for the day? God, I forgot to do it yesterday. Let's go with Justin Garza. Major League debut. Yes, he gives up a giant run to Nelson Cruz, but he strikes out three and uh, shuts down the Twins after that. So Garza, MVP for the day. So thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning.